Take your Bibles and turn with me First Thessalonians 2.13. In 1933, just six years after the Great Depression hit, a man named Raymond Bragg published a hellacious publication called The Humanist Manifesto. 34 people signed it. Nowadays, people don't understand, how did we get where we are? That was 31 years before I was in the first grade. And I can remember in the first and second grade, every day in public schools in Dyersburg, Jenny Walker Elementary, to be precise, the teacher would say, class, today I'm going to read from the Bible, then we'll pledge allegiance, and then we'll pray. First and second grade, I did that. Third grade, it had been ruled to be against the law in our secular schools. Where did that come from? The Humanist Manifesto. And I believe it is in a direct attack from the enemy to cause this nation to go down. And we have gone down ever since we allowed the humanists to take control of our public schools. Our children, two of them graduated from public schools. We moved here. Two of them graduated from a private school. I'm not saying you shouldn't put your kids in public school, but what I am saying is there is an indoctrination that takes place in many schools, colleges especially. There are so many college professors in our secular schools. And we send our children there, they've been raised in church, and the first thing they hear from English professors and history professors, not theologians, if I went to their class and said, I want to teach history today, they will say, well, you're not educated for history. I will say, well, you're not educated for theology. Just because you have a Ph.D. in English doesn't mean you know, there's a great word for you, diddly about theology or what the Bible teaches. Why should we listen to a Ph.D. in biology or English or history teaching on theology? If you say, is that a sore spot for you? Yes, because it has ruined the lives of many people. What do humanists believe? Let me just read it to you from their manifesto, 1933. This is the first one. They had revised ones. And the revised, the revised ones are farther to the left than this. Today's man's larger, man's larger understanding of the universe, his scientific achievements, his Deeper appreciation of brotherhood have created a situation which requires a new statement of the means and purposes of religion. You hear what he's saying? We have become so sophisticated, we have to redefine how we're affected by religion. We affirm the following. Humanists regard the universe as self-existing, not created. In other words, Genesis 1-1 is incorrect. 
It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They don't believe in creation. They don't believe in God. So right out of the gate, it's going downhill, all right? And then, there's no difference between your spirit and your body. In other words, they hold on to a universal, they say we are holding an organic view of life. We believe that life comes from just life. We don't know how it started, but humanists find that the traditional dualism of mind and body must be rejected. In other words, they don't believe that because you are a person that you are necessarily a person born in sin. That's what they're against there. And then they believe that religion came from man, not from God. Here's what they say. Humanism recognizes that Man's religious culture and civilization, as clearly depicted by anthropology and history, are the product of a gradual development due to his interaction with his natural environment and with his social heritage. The individual born into a particular culture is largely molded by that culture. In other words, you just got that religion stuff from your culture. There's nothing about that that's real, and you need to wake up. Then humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values. In other words, look, you're just a part of the universe. You're no more important than an animal or a rock. That's what humanism says. And then we are convinced the time has passed for theism, deism, modernism, and of any new thought. In other words, no religion. In the place of the old attitudes involved in worship and prayer, the humanist finds his religious emotions expressed in a heightened sense of personal life and in cooperative effort to promote social well-being. Now, there's a lot of key words there, but what they're saying is you don't need prayer, you don't need a spiritual life, you just need to live with other humans in peace. That's what he's talking about, enjoying life. There will be no uniquely religious emotions and attitudes of the kind hitherto associated with belief in the supernatural. We don't believe in the supernatural, we believe in the natural. Man will learn to face the crisis of life in terms of his knowledge and other natural, naturalness and probability. Reasonable attitudes will be fostered by education. There it is. They took this stuff to the public schools. And within 31 years, it was the law of the land. That's how quickly the enemy moved on our nation. We assume that humanism will take the path of social and mental hygiene and discover, discourage sentimental and unreal hopes and wishful thinking. We're going to replace all religion. That's what he's saying. Believing that religion must work increasingly for joy in living, religious humanists aim to foster the creative in man and to encourage achievements that add to the, the satisfactions of life. And then religious humanists maintain that all associations and institutions exist for the fulfillment of human life. Religious institutions, their ritualistic forms, ecclesiastical methods, and communal activities must be reconstituted as rapidly as experience allows in order to function effectively in the modern world. The church is going to have to get with it and keep up with culturalism and humanism. Existing, acquisitive, profit-motivated society has shown itself to be inadequate 
and that a radical change in methods, controls, motives must be instituted. A socialized and cooperative economic order must be established to the end that the equitable distribution of the means of life be possible. The goal of humanism is a free universal society in which people voluntarily and intelligently cooperate for the common good. Humanists demand a shared life in a shared world. And what he's saying there is capitalism is the enemy of society. Socialism and communism is what is going to save our societies. You go to a communist country. I've been to China. We have, I've known some people that were on that same trip and went to North Korea. I've been to Mongolia, which was part of the USSR. I've seen what communism does. And before a country engages in communism, it accepts socialism always. And that's just the pathway that goes. And it was the most hard-hearted, mean-spirited experience of my life back in the late 1990s, about 1997, 1998, to go to China and to walk to Tiananmen Square and to see how ungodly a godless society really is. And we assert that humanism will affirm life rather than deny it, seek to elicit the possibilities of life, not flee from them, endeavor to establish the conditions of a satisfactory life for all, not just for the few. Though we consider the religious forms and ideas of our fathers no longer adequate, the quest for the good life is still the central task for mankind. Oh, we want the good life. Man is at last becoming aware that he is alone. He alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams and that he has within himself the power for its achievement. He must set intelligence and will to the task. It's left us, us guys. There's no God. We're on our own. If we're going to make life better, it's all up to us. Baloney. Full of lies. And yet that is what has influenced America for the last 70, 80 years. It's hard to believe that over the last nine decades, we have capitulated and given into this stuff without calling it out for what it is. And that is heresy. So, what do we believe? There's 15 bedrock beliefs for society from the humanists. What do we believe? Well, we believe a lot of things. I don't have time to give 15 points. You know that. Once in a while, I'll try, but I'm just going to give you seven. Of, and there are others that we could obviously put out there, but I want to give you set, seven bedrock beliefs for a Christian creed. Creed just means it's a statement of what you believe. What's wrong with that? I don't mind somebody knowing what I believe, and you shouldn't either. And You need to know what you believe. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it and what you base it upon. I base what I believe on the Word of God, the Bible. I believe it's the inerrant Word of God. In fact, I'll just uh, read this. We'll go right into it, all right? 
the Christian creed, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. What Accepted what? The word of God. Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. What he's saying is the word of God is not the word of men, it's the word of God, <laughs> which also performs its work in you who believe. I want to tell you seven things that every Christian ought to believe. Number one, you ought to believe in the Bible, Scripture. It starts there. We believe the Bible. We believe Scripture. Second, to me, the most important text in the whole Bible about the Bible is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. It's the next to the last chapter that Paul ever wrote. And in it, he talks to his favorite son in the ministry, Timothy, and he talks to him about how he got saved by hearing Scripture from his parents. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. You, however, continue, Timothy, in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood. Do you understand? Whoever gets the children gets the whole nation. That from childhood... You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, in fact, let's read this together. Read it off the screen with me. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How much Scripture? All Scripture. The Bible is inspired. It was breathed into existence through the Holy Spirit, through anointed men. And God used fallible men, sinful men, to write a perfect book. The Bible is inspired. It is inerrant. There are no mistakes whatsoever in the Bible. When it speaks scientifically, it's correct. When it speaks theologically, it's correct. When it speaks historically, it's correct. The Bible is infallible. It cannot in and of itself lead you astray. People read the Bible and get weird things out of it. That's because they had weird beliefs when they went to it. The Bible doesn't make you believe something that's wrong it just shows that we are sinners and we are fallible, but the Bible is infallible. It will not in and of itself lead you astray. People can misuse it and lead people astray, but that's not the Bible's fault. The Bible is infinite. It will live forever. There are going to be Bibles in heaven. How do you know that? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands what? Forever forever. I want the, there to be Bibles in heaven. I'm, I got a few things I want to ask about, all right? Amen. The Bible leads us to salvation. Look back at verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ. Timothy, your, your parents, and they the, the, the soul-winning New Testament they didn't have. They had the Old Testament. They led their children to faith in Christ 
using the Old Testament. Oh, that can be done. And that's exactly what they did. They took the Scriptures, which they believed, and they led them to Christ. And then the Bible is also helpful in sanctification, growing in grace. He talks about in verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. That's exactly what it means. And it's profitable. It, it has advantages. What? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Notice the negative and the positive. God will reprove you with Scripture. He will correct you with Scripture. He will teach you with Scripture. He will train you in righteousness with Scripture. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If you don't live in the Bible, you don't have a chance as a Christian to live the life that Christ wants you to live. At Bellevue, we believe the Bible is the eternal, inspired, inerrant, infallible, infinite, salvific, sanctifying Word of the living God. We believe the Bible. Scripture. Let's thank God for our Bible right now. Amen. Amen. Secondly, we believe in the virgin birth, our Savior, Jesus. Why do we believe in the virgin birth? Because it's in the Bible. Luke 1, 26 and following. You'll hear more about this text later on in the coming weeks before Christmas. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Every word in that is important. I don't have time to unpack it, but it is. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now this is a little poor teenage girl and an angel shows up and greetings, favored one. She's looking around. Who are you talking to? The Lord is with you, favored one. She was very perplexed at this statement, kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, don't be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb, bear a son. You'll name him Jesus. Can you imagine her mouth is just dropping, her jaws dropping to the floor? He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be? I am a virgin. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Same word used in Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit shall come upon you. You shall be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're changed. It was exactly the, the word used in salvation and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and now it's also used in the virgin birth of Christ. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month for nothing, say it with me, Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, and I love this, she submits to the call of God. Notice what she said. This is a prayer you ought to pray a lot. At. Whenever God asks you to do something, here's the answer. Behold, I'm just the bond slave of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. That's how you talk to God. You don't tell him what to do. He tells you what to do. And you say, be it done unto me according to your word. I'm the bondservant 
of the Lord. Jesus was born of a virgin. Prophet Isaiah prophesied it hundreds of years prior to his birth. Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God with us. That's right. Most every liberal theologian and Christian denies the virgin birth. And most every Bible-believing conservative Christian and preacher believes in the virgin birth because how else could God be born? You and I have a sinful nature. We got it from Adam and Eve. When they sinned, they had a sinful nature that they passed on to their children. And it has been passed on ever since. Every child at the moment that they are in their mother's womb, at the moment of conception, has a sinful nature. We have that propensity toward doing what we want to do. We love to sing that song, I did it my way. I'm serious. Oh, it's, it, it's true. We like to drive like we like to drive, eat like we like to eat. We don't like anybody telling us what to do, especially God, especially God. We don't like Him telling us what to do. And the Bible says Jesus was born of a virgin free from a sinful nature. That's the purpose of the virgin birth. How could he be the sinless son of God if he had a sinful nature? So he had to be born of a virgin. And then he was tempted like us, but he never gave in to sin. He kept that sinless state until he went to the cross, or he couldn't have gone to the cross and died for our sins. So that's why he was born of a virgin. Again, how else could God be born? You know, Mormons believe that as people, we can do good works and become God. Well, that's the opposite of the gospel. I don't want to become God because God became man through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel is not me becoming God. The gospel is about God becoming man, born of a virgin, free from a sinful nature so that I could be saved and so that you could be saved. We believe in the virgin birth, our Savior. Thirdly, we believe in being born again our salvation. Remember Nicodemus? Jesus speaking to him, John 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. He didn't want any of his buddies knowing he was going to go talk to that guy named Jesus. He said to them, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He, he said basically, you know, we believe that you are from God. Jesus said, <laughs> I don't know, it's, 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 it's more than that. It's more than that. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter his, a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? He's talking about natural birth. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that is being born of the flesh, and, and when a, a, a baby is born, there is that water that flows out, 
That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about baptism. Forget that. That's not anywhere around this scripture. And the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Notice that. Born of the flesh, born of the water. They are the same thing. Born of the Spirit, born of the, of the Spirit is the same thing. And then he says, don't be amazed that I tell you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, where it's going, so is everyone born of the Spirit. You've got to be born again. You've got to be. You've got to be saved. The only people who go to heaven are born-again Christians. And can I just say this? Born-again Christians is a redundant statement because if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. I like to hear... People talk about that, you know, and they, they'll say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again. <laughs> eh, no, you're not. You're not. You have to be born again. We used to sing that. that uh, we must be born again. We must be born again. I verily, verily say unto thee, you must be born again. Why? Because you must be born again. If you know Jesus, you know God. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. And you have to come to Christ humbly in repentance and saying, Lord, I am sorry. I believe that what you did on the cross is totally all that I need to be saved. I believe in you. I repent of my sins. I believe in you, and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And that, at that moment, you're born again. You're born. You're born, and you will live forever. Born once, you'll die twice. You'll die a physical death, and then you'll die eternally. Not cessation of spirit. You'll, you'll die all of eternity in hell. But if you're born twice, you'll only die once. Physical death, and then you'll live forever. I don't know about you. I believe I do. But I want to be born again. That's what salvation is. Have you ever been born again? Have you ever received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Let's just stop right here, and you do it right now. God loves you, but you're a sinner, and the wages of your sin is spiritual death, separation from God, but God loved you too much to leave you like that. He sent His Son Jesus, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, died an atoning death, was raised from the dead, and He did it to give you eternal life. And the way you receive that is by repenting, turning from your sin, believing in Jesus, and receiving Him as Lord and Savior. And you can do it right now. Hundreds of people have been married right where I'm standing. Hundreds, if not thousands. And you know what they did? They said their vows to one another. And at that moment, not when the preacher said, I now pronounce you. No, it was way before that. It's when they said their vows. That's when they got married. The rest of it is dessert, all right? That's where it really took place. And where it really takes place for you is not you walking an aisle or anything like that. Nothing wrong with that. But it's when you pray and receive Christ. So let's just bow right now. And if you'd like to pray and receive Christ, do it right now. Just say, dear, dear Lord Jesus, I'm going to lead you in your vows to God. It's like a pastor would lead a young couple in their wedding vows. And say, dear Lord Jesus, I am lost. I want to be saved. You are the only Savior. I repent of my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me for my sin. 
I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. And I receive you right now. I call on your name. Save me, Lord Jesus. And I thank you that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's thank the Lord for those who were just born again. Amen. <clears throat> now, once you get saved, what do you do? Well, we believe in, fourthly, the blood. We believe in sanctification. Salvation, the, the beginning of it, is when you repent and believe and receive. But then you engage in sanctification. You're set apart from all the people to belong to the Lord. And you still sin, and you can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. 1 John 1, 7 through 9. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us, goes on cleansing us, Christians, from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. You're never going to reach perfectionism until you get to glorification, and that is in heaven. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us. He's talking about Christians, our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can't lose your salvation, but you can lose the fellowship that He talked about in verse 7. And so when you sin, you'll know it. How? The indwelling Holy Spirit will tell you. Don't tell me you don't know that. Don't tell me you don't. I mean, you can do that. You can sin while you're reading the Bible and somebody interrupts you. You can have a bad attitude and then go try to read your Bible after you've done that, all right? Y'all don't act so holy, all right, out there. I'm, I'm not impressed, all right? You can sure sin when you're driving. <laughs> you can sin in relationships, and whenever God convicts you of that, confess it, repent of it, and then ask God to forgive you, and then move on, accept His forgiveness. And that helps you in sanctification. Maybe you get angry at somebody. The Bible says in James 1.20, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. You've got to repent of that. Say, God, I'm sorry. Not to keep your salvation, but to keep your fellowship with God. Don't you want to stay close with God? Don't you want to have your prayers answered? Don't you want to walk by the Holy Spirit? Don't you want Him telling you what to do? He just pulls back until you straighten it up. And when you do, He comes right back. It's not that He pulls salvation away. He pulls His fellowship away. And I don't want to lose fellowship with God. So we believe in the blood. We believe in sanctification. We believe in the body, the saints. We believe in the church. We believe that everybody ought to be part of a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, Spirit-filled church. Notice I didn't put Baptist in there. I don't believe Baptists are the only way to go to heaven or anything like that. I'm in a Baptist church because I grew up in one, but that's not the reason I'm in it. I, I studied their doctrine, and I studied what they believed, and I believe what we believe. That's why I'm a Baptist, but I'm a Christian before I'm a Baptist. And I don't use Baptist to disfellowship anybody, all right? We need to be Christians. We need to be in the body of Christ. We need to be saints of God. Saints means set, set apart, sanctified, set apart. That's all it means. Matthew 16, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. When we go to Israel, we go to Caesarea Philippi, where he said these very words. We stand 
where Peter said these words to Jesus. He said, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. The gates of Hades or hell will not overpower it. That doesn't mean that the church is built on Peter. There are two words for rocks there. One was a little bitty stone, and one was a great big slab of rock. And he said there, I say to you, you're Peter upon this rock. The second one is upon this granite, hard, huge stone. Not Peter, a little bitty pebble. No, I'm not building it on Peter. And he was using this. You can only see it in the Greek. And I know that some people say that. And I can't read Greek, you know, and all that. You say that and you say, I can't understand the Bible. Yes, you can. You can understand the Bible. But I'm telling you, this is not talking about like the Catholics say that the church is built on Peter. Peter was a sinner. Peter denied the Lord. The church is not built on Peter. The church is built on the rock of this confession. Listen, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is that statement? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's where the church is rests upon. That's our foundation. He is Christ, and He is the Son of God, and we rest on Him. Let's give Him praise. Amen. And when you believe that, you become a sanctified saint, a set-apart one. Some people say, a saint I ain't. Well, you, then you're not saved. Every Christian is set apart. You're a sanctified person, set apart from the world to be Christ. And you believe in Him, and you're in the body of Christ. We believe in the body, the saints. Number six, we believe in the battle, spiritual warfare. I believe I've heard about that recently in some sermons that somebody preached. You want to see the war? You want to see what it's like? You want to see the heavens peeled back? You want to look into the spirit realm for just a minute? Look at the screen and look at Revelation 12, 7 and following. There was war in heaven. There it is. <clears throat> What's going on? Michael and his angels <clears throat> waging war with the dragon. That's Satan. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. Hallelujah. Don't put the devil on par with Jesus. There was no longer a place for them. Topos found from them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who's called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him. You ready for this? They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Christians, we are in a spiritual war. It is not just a human war. It's not just a war between nations. It's not just a political war. It's way beyond that. It's a war between the saints of God and the enemy of God, that is the devil and his demons, 
But here, here's it. It's a war. Here it is. The war has already been won. Jesus Christ died on the cross, was raised from the dead, has ascended to heaven, and now we have prayer, we have spiritual gifts, we have the whole armor of God, and we can have victory if we'll just claim it and walk in it and live, live for the Lord. Jesus is Lord of the spiritual war and the spiritual world. He's superior to Satan. And I would say to anybody in here that is in any way involved in Satanism, I want to say this to you. There is something much greater than Satan, and that is Jesus Christ. If you want to see where the real power is and where the real love is, come to Jesus Christ. We believe in the battle, spiritual warfare. Well, there's one more thing I want to say that we believe. We believe in the blessed hope, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking, read these words with me, looking for the blessed hope. Say it out loud. Looking for the blessed hope. The blessed hope is the coming of Christ. Say it again. Looking for the blessed hope now and the appearing of His glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus. Jesus is called God right there. He's God. He's our Savior. He is Christ Jesus. There's a four-point sermon that will preach. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort Titus, and reprove all with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What do we believe about the coming of the Lord? We believe, first of all, at Bellevue, we believe six things about that. I'll give it to you and we'll be through. You can write these down if you'd like to. We believe in the rapture of the church. It's not going to be on the screen. Just write it down. We believe in the rapture of the church. You can look at Luke chapter 17 in the last few verses and you'll see the rapture of the church. It's the snatching away. The snatching away. It's talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be caught up to meet Him in the air. It's the snatching away. And He describes it. Jesus does. When He said two will be in bed, one will be taken, one will be left. Two will be working, one will be taken, one will be left. Two will be walking together, one will be taken, one will be left. That's the rapture of the church. It could happen right now. Nothing. No other prophecies have to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church. And that begins what Jesus called in Matthew 24, the second thing, the great tribulation. The world has yet to see the greatest tribulation it will ever have. We've had some hard times. Civil war was terrible. We went to Shiloh recently. I did with some, some of the guys that I went to high school with, and it was just unbelievable, the butchery that took place. 23,000 casualties, uh, including dead, missing, and wounded. It was just butchery for two days out there. But it's going to be, that's, that's nothing in comparison about the seven years that's going to happen on this planet called the Great Tribulation. Third thing is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The rapture is when Jesus comes for His church. The second coming is when Jesus comes with His church. With His church. And then the millennial reign of Christ. The 1,000 year reign of Christ. You can read about it you can read about the second coming in uh, Revelation 19, and you can read about 
the uh, millennial reign in Revelation 20, the first five or six verses. And then the destruction of heaven and earth, everything's going to be burned up, even your pretty flowers, even your pretty house, even your pretty car, even your pretty jewelry, all this stuff that we think is such a big deal, anything like that is going to be burned up. And praise God, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That's the last thing. And a new Jerusalem. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. What is the Christian creed? Why do the humanists hate Christianity so much? It's because of what we believe. What do we believe? We believe in the Bible, Scripture. We believe in the virgin birth, our Savior. We believe in being born again, salvation. We believe in the blood that sanctifies us. We believe in the body, the saints. We believe in the battle, spiritual warfare. Greater is Jesus who is in us than he who is in the world. And we believe, look, not only we believe all this stuff, but we are crazy enough to believe that somebody is coming back riding on a white horse that is going to set us free out of this old sinful world. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Amen.